Well, you know, I would say, honestly, so I'm an entrepreneur as well. I have multiple businesses, you know, and th that requires a lot of deal making, of course. But politics is takes the cake in terms of the complexity <laughs> of the deal making. And that's because there is so much both supportive, friendly, you know, <laughs> deal making, as well as a little bit of backstabbing. Because in politics, it's not like you're taking away money. All you're doing is taking away sort of positions half the time. And you see this, you know, now, even with, uh, you know, when you watch the debate between Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harrison, you know, all of a sudden now she, she might be his vice president, even though they were at each other's throats just a few months ago in the debates. This happens all the time in every single political party. Because, uh, like, for example, even the transhumanist party, it has multiple factions. There are socialist transhumanists, there are libertarian transhumanists, there are communist transhumanists, then there are Christian transhumanists who really want to lead through religion, and then there are purely atheist transhumanists. If you want to become a candidate or like, a, you know, the, the one who's nominated, then you need to work with all those parties. And you often choose the, the biggest one, which has the most influence. But usually just by choosing the biggest faction, you can't win the nomination. So you really got to make a ton of deals. And it requires being nice to everybody, even when everybody is throwing sand in your eyes and stuff like that. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. DealQuest listeners, we have a little different type of guest on today, uh, and I want to say up front, it's going to be an interesting discussion because deal-making and negotiating come uh, about in all types of contexts, including politics, including movements, and by having on any guest who's uh, running for political office, I want to say we're not endorsing or not endorsing any of those guests. We're welcome to having any political candidate coming on who can talk about deals and negotiating and anything that's valuable to our audience. So with that, I'm going to introduce our guest. My guest today is Zoltan Isvan. He's a world leader in the field of transhumanism. He's also a vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party in 2020. I'm excited to have Zoltan on because I think he's going to bring a different view of deals and negotiating and how that plays in, in the, uh, the political realm and in the movement realm. And so, Zoltan, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So listen, you know, I, I know some of your background. I know you ran for uh, president on, on uh, the Transhumanist Party in 2016. I know you were a conflict journalist before that. And before we get into how that all led you, you know, to what you're doing now and what the Transhumanist Party stands for and, and what the movement is about, I want to take you back even further. So when you were a kid growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old, what did you want to be? Because my guess is leading the Transhumanist Party probably wasn't it, but you tell me. Well, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to be a scientist. I was just totally fascinated with science. And I kind of imagined I'd be wearing a white coat in a laboratory and working all day. And uh, of course, transhumanism is now all about science. So in a way, I'm, I have sort of fulfilled that dream. I'm just uh, <laughs> more of a voice of the movement, not uh, in, the, in the laboratory. 
Right. Totally get it. We'll definitely hear more about that. And one more opening question. So do you have a memory of whatever your first deal was, whatever that looks like, whether it was when you were a kid or older? Or- uh, you know, I used to be, <laughs> this is going to, this is going to sound totally weird, but um, I used to be a very competitive swimmer. My dad started me when I was very, very young. And I remember I was not allowed to eat Twinkies or uh, desserts or anything like that. I took swimming very uh, seriously. My parents didn't. So, and I did it on a national level. And every year, if I reached a certain kind of time and, and a certain type of place, I would get to go out to like a grocery store and pick like $50 worth of snacks, which I would just eat all in one night, Twinkies <laughs> and donuts, stuff like that. But it was only if I made it. So I remember one year I didn't make my time and I didn't get it. But all the other years I did. And I, I got that shoebox full of like Twinkies and terrible things. But it was always a deal. And, you know, when you're a kid and you can't have sugary sweets and your friends do, that makes you want to accomplish something. And so I remember that was the deal I always made my parents. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay, so listen, let's, let's jump to today. Uh, not all of our listeners uh, may know what the transhumanist uh, movement is all about. So just, you know, give us the, uh, you know, highlight summary, couple of minutes on, on that so we can have a baseline. Yeah, absolutely. Well, transhumanism is a social movement with many millions of people around the world that want to use science and technology to radically modify the human being and also to modify the human experience. It can be anything from like exoskeleton suits that will allow, um, you know, old people that are immobile to be mobile again, to walk, maybe even climb Mount Everest. It can be things like chip implants, either in your, attached to your brain or in your hand, as I have. And it can also be things like genetic editing, where we try to, you know, eliminate cancer through radical types of genetic therapies instead of the normal types of treatments. But whatever transhumanism is, it's always radical science. That science, that's kind of the 10% most radical of humanity applied to the human being. So let me ask you this, Uh, you know, for those of us who know a little bit about this, there are companies, you know, tech companies from Silicon Valley to Israel to all over the world who are doing various things in this area, whether it's related to life extension or life improvement or, you know, helping disabled folks with inventions. There are certainly, you know, in in, in the bio, um, you know, uh, medical field and science field, you know, all these different aspects where this is, you know, the goal of a lot of people. But you've chosen to approach it through a political realm as well, which is where it's often called, uh, you know, sort of fringe or radical or anything like that. But when you speak to scientists and tech people, a lot of them are spending their time in this uh, particular area, but it's just not on the political side. Well, yeah, you know, so when I was looking at how I could uh, be, you know, influential in the transhumanist movement, how I could, you know, per se, move the football forward, I was wondering, well, what can I do? I'm not a scientist. I'm a journalist by trade. And, you know, the movement has some good journalists out there, but what it didn't have was any political emphasis. And, of course, as you you can imagine, politics is pretty much the most important thing for getting things done in terms of science budget, in terms of changing culture, in terms of a lot of different things. So I had formed, as a result of not seeing any politics in the transhumanist movement, I formed the Transhumanist Party, which is, you know, kind of America's first science political party. We kind of base our, our entire philosophies off this scientific method. And uh, in 2016, I was nominated as presidential candidate to run. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, America actually received having a science candidate really well. I think I got ended up getting six in the overall general election um, in terms of traffic. You know, it's, it's hard because you can't get on all the ballots, but in terms of traffic. And so while we never had a chance to win, of course, the election, um, we got our message out. We had 100 million views. We were, you know, doing all sorts of different projects with the Transhumanist Party. And the Transhumanist Party continues, and so does my politics. I've jumped around to different parties, but I still maintain mostly that my politics is really about trying to bring science and technology to the forefront 
of the American mindset and using science and technology as a way to inspire Americans to think more than just about taxes and social security and things like that, but to think of, of, of politics in terms of where's technology leading us? What can we do in order to get people to live longer? Um, how can we make it so people don't have to work so much and maybe, you know, use technology so they can work less, but make just as much money. These are the things that I'm trying to do in politics and transhumanism. So I, I want to ask you one more political question before I, uh, we start tying, the, tying this a little bit into deals. This may be my ignorance, and maybe I'm not putting something together, but you're running as a vice presidential, vice presidential candidate on a libertarian party, and my general view of the libertarian party is that they're, uh, you know, less involvement in government, you know, in various things. And then, of course, you have a lot of free market private sector people who would say that it's actually the private sector that's, you know, can make the most uh, traction in these kind of, you know, things in terms of innovation and development. So what is the role of government in this, and how does that line up with the party that you're currently running on? You know, just so your listeners know and yourself, I, I do bounce around from parties. I'm not a, necessarily beholden to any one single party. I do like the libertarian philosophy, the kind of hands-off idea. And I've been, as an entrepreneur, I have other multiple businesses. I, I do believe in hands-off, you know, just let me run my business and make money. But, you know, the libertarian philosophy is very good for science because one of the challenging things about science is how much the government is trying to put red tape around the experiments because they either feel that they're too far-fetched or they need more, uh, you know, guidance or things like that. You know, a good example is um, the coronavirus, for example. We have a lot of different biotech companies working on either cures or, uh, you know, vaccines and things like that. And what's standing in the way of them getting from point A to point B is government, is essentially the FDA and other places like that saying, slow down, we need to test it on people, we need to do that. Now, of course, that's, that's correct. We don't want to put out bad vaccines that, you know, do bad things to people. But at the same time, from a company perspective, trying to make money and trying to get a, a save humanity, we want to get the vaccine out there as quickly as possible. So the libertarians would, of course, voice less government interference when it comes to producing a vaccine. And, you know, others like Democrats and even Republicans would say, no, wait a sec, we want bigger government in order to slow this process down. And, you know, as a guy who's trying to live a lot longer, a lot quicker, uh, you know, I want less government involved in the process of science so that we can get green lights for these things much more quickly. Yeah, it's interesting for me because, uh, you know, personally, I've sort of uh, uh, have a mixed view on the role of government and, you know, in business and things like that. But one of the roles that I've always felt that it could usefully uh, provide and has in the past when done well is actually to fund research and things like that, that before the, pl- uh, the point at which it becomes commercially viable, you know, before companies can get investment for it and, and things like that. Agree or disagree? I agree. Now, but I agree. And I want to tell you that if you're a libertarian listening to this, you're going to not like me right now. <laughs> you probably won't vote for me. Um, but I, that's because I have said it again and again, you know, the libertarian philosophy is based on the non-aggression principle, which essentially says you don't cause harm to anyone else. Uh, you, you shouldn't be causing harm. But I believe that disease, I believe cancer, I believe obesity, I believe death. I believe these are things that harm humanity. Therefore, even libertarians believe at some point government must come in. Like, for example, if we're being attacked by Nazi Germany, libertarians would have said, yes, we should get a, an army together and fight back. Yes. But I feel the same way like that about I feel about death and disease and cancer. So I think it's a government's responsibility to put in money to the research to fight these, these terrible things that happen to humanity. Now, that, that doesn't mean that I want to completely fund, you know, universal health care for all or anything like that. No, 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 that's not it. But I do believe that a government can take its citizens' health very seriously. 
and help get a lot of these medical projects off the ground. So something, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, about deals and negotiating. I know you've had some experience with, uh, you know, within the movement, right? When people think about politics, they often think about deals and negotiating across party, right? Backroom deals, upfront deals, you know, crossing the divide. You know, but there's some things around holding movements and parties together and, you know, where they might uh, sprint through a, a fraction. Talk about your experience there and how, uh, you know, deal making and negotiating skills come into play. Well, you know, I would say, honestly, so I'm an entrepreneur as well. I have multiple businesses, you know, and th- that requires a lot of deal making, of course. But politics is takes the cake in terms of the complexity <laughs> of the deal making. And that's because there is so much both supportive, friendly, you know, deal making, as well as a little bit of backstabbing. Because in politics, it's not like you're taking away money. All you're doing is taking away sort of positions half the time. And you see this, you know, now, even with, uh, you know, when you watch the debate between Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris, and, you know, all of a sudden now she, she might be his vice president, even though they were at each other's throats just a few months ago in the debates. This happens all the time in every single political party. Because, uh, like, for example, even the transhumanist party, it has multiple factions. There are socialist transhumanists, there are libertarian transhumanists, there are communist transhumanists, then there are Christian transhumanists who really want to lead through religion, and then there are purely atheist transhumanists. If you want to become a candidate or like, a, you know, the, the one who's nominated, um, then you need to work with all those parties, and you often choose the, the biggest one, which has the most influence, but usually just by choosing the biggest faction, you can't win the nomination, so you really got to make a ton of deals. And it requires being nice to everybody, even when everybody is throwing um, sand in your eyes and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, it's always interesting to me. I, I mean, I remember uh, many years ago, uh, I guess it was 99, I was in a, a leadership program in New York City uh, called Coro, uh, which I'll give a little shout out to because it's a great program. And, um, and, you know, one of the things that they did was bring together government, private sector and nonprofit to try to work together to solve social and, you know, uh, economic and other issues. And, you know, there was a big uh, discussion in that program about the conversation of stakeholders and how various stakeholders have different viewpoints. But in order to get anything done in a complex society, you need to find a way to bring them together, at least on certain issues. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, and that, that's, that's kind of the big thing. Like, you know, one of the big things that happened in the transhumanist party is when I ran and was nominee in 2016, a faction of it actually broke off and formed its own science <laughs> political party. And, and, you know, if you don't know much about the Green Party, uh, which is America's fourth largest political party, they are right now also two political Green Parties that broke off about 20, 30 years ago from one. And now they're fight, sort of fighting each other. Now, there's one that always leads, the one with Jill Stein. But, you know, all parties have breakoffs. And the goal, though, is that you are your strongest when you are just a single force out there, especially when it's already something as weird as transhumanism. Or even libertarianism, you know, libertarians never win anything, basically. So it makes perfect sense to try to keep the factions from breaking off and just try to keep unity. But the problem is when you're trying to take on the Republicans or the Democrats, these, you know, the the big boys, let's say, it's very hard because everybody has to be somewhat revolutionary. And yet you have to compromise and try to stay on the same narrow path. But, um, you know, in my opinion, a lot of it just comes down to compromise. The person who masters compromise often ends up the winner. And I want to hear a little bit more about uh, transhumanism. Uh, but before I go there, what are some of the lessons that you uh, learned? Because you do have that, that uh, business background. You have a journalist background. You, you know, you, you've obviously now been involved in politics. What are some of the lessons you learned either in politics that uh, in terms of deals and negotiating that you apply to business or in business that you applied in politics? 
Well, you know, I, I think uh, just I think let's I'll stick with journalists because you probably don't get too many people that talk about the deal making in journalists That's in journalism. And um, you know, so just for example, I, I worked for National Geographic for five years, and I would let's say I'm covering shamans in Paraguay. This is one of the big stories I did. It's incredibly difficult to get a shaman in the middle of the forest to want to share his inside information with you about a lifetime of gathering knowledge about herbs and things like that with media because it's his secret. So you have to make a deal with the shaman. And because you work for National Geographic, you can never give money. You can't pay people. So you, they have to learn to trust you and they need to learn to trust that you're going to tell their story that either doesn't reveal the full secrets or does so in a way that the, the trade-off for revealing their secrets actually makes their life better or their professionalism or their professional life better. And this happens constantly as a journalist where you really need to know who you're dealing with, work out the nitty gritty, talk about these things ahead of time because it's very hard to remain objective and also to get your, the person you're interviewing to come out with their heart and tell you a good story. So, you know, journalism more than anything, I think has prepared me for deal making because every single story is different and every single story requires investigation as well as, you know, almost begging the person to tell me the best scoops so I can write the best story. Yeah. And gain, gaining that trust, right? Which is crucial for me in any kind of uh, deal of any type. Yes, yes. You know, and I've covered a lot of war zones. So if you're talking to military commanders, you know, they don't need bad press. They already have a, a whole thing. It's all about gaining trust. And that comes from writing articles that are objective and, and reporting on the facts and definitely not going, you know, today's media is very clickbait. It seems like a lot of it is designed to, oh, my God, you know, sensationalism. But the journalism that I'm used to doing is, is designed to be just reporting the facts and trying to tell the general public about what's going on. And if, if, I'm, and if it's a story based on somebody, trying to do my best to represent that person in the true light that they are. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to join our DealQuest community group on Facebook. There, you'll have a chance to engage with other entrepreneurs, business owners, executives, and leaders who are looking to grow, do deals, and make a bigger impact. In addition to the great content and community, you can also register there for our conversations, community, and cocktail Zoom calls and the upcoming Deal Den Zoom calls during which you will have the opportunity to brainstorm and get support with deal-driven growth for your company. Now back to the show. So let's, let's jump off from there. So what had you move mainly out of, you know, conflict journalism, conflict zone journalism, and really take on, uh, you know, get involved with and take on this uh, transhumanist uh, movement uh, in the first place? Well, so I was um, in Vietnam covering a story on bomb diggers, uh, the Vietnamese farmers out in the middle of the demilitarized zone, you know, 40 years after the Vietnam War, 50 years. There's a ton of unexploded bombs. And so they dig up these bombs and they sell the metal after defusing the bombs, a very dangerous job. And a lot of them lose limbs and, and their lives when the bombs accidentally explode. Plus there's landmines. And I had a very close call with a landmine. Well, this is for National Geographic. And Afterwards, I just kind of gave up the conflict zone reporting. It was, it was really uh, some sketchy stuff. And I came home and wrote a book called The Transhumanist Wager, which in some sense is a political manifesto about transhumanism, sort of overwhelming the world and people going down the transhumanist path, like let us become more than human beings. And after that book did very well, you know, it was number one in science fiction on Amazon and things like that, um, I realized, wow, I should probably maybe try to make a little bit of the book real and 
you know, start a political movement in transhumanism since it was moving. And, you know, I was just happened to be the first person that did this. I, you know, the very first what we call science candidate in America. There are now like another dozen people that are running under science platforms. But at the time in 2015, no one had really heard of somebody running under the scientific method. The idea that you always try to use logic, science and technology as an answer to today's problems rather than an answer through either religion or heritage or historical perspective or constitutional perspective. I try to use the scientific method. It's, it's sort of a, a brand new idea. Well, and interesting, I mean, it seems to me like the, you know, without getting too deep into, uh, into current politics, but it seems to me that, you know, certainly that was up in 2016 and certainly in 2020, um, the idea of, uh, of the value of science, uh, whether it's on COVID-19, whether it's on anything else, uh, you know, that, that current U.S. politics, uh, their take on it versus, uh, you know, I, I'm sure what you view would have to be very, very different. Well, yeah, you know, and one of the big things that transhumanists try to do is we warn about existential risk. And so, you know, this year it's COVID-19 that got us. But don't get me wrong, there are a number of other enormous existential risks out there. We have the fact that an asteroid could hit the planet. We don't have enough funding for people out in the skies looking. We have the problems of super volcanoes in various places. We have the problem of climate change, of course, which is the big one. We have the problem of, you know, there are approximately 15,000 live nuclear weapons out there around the world held on by a bunch of countries that don't always get along with each other. This is a very serious existential crisis. It only takes one to go off and something terrible can happen. So there are, there's a myriad bunch of existential issues out there and happened to be that COVID-19 was the one that woke humanity up to the fact that, yeah, a plague can also destroy humanity. And transhumanists, if we ever get into office, one of the very first things we would do is probably you know, reduce the size of the military, reduce the size of the military budget, take a lot of that money and apply it directly towards dealing with existential risks that humans face, as well as dealing with health problems. I mean, we think obesity is one of the you know, biggest killers in America, diabetes. We should work these things out. We can work these things out. We might have a pill that will make people skinnier later and healthier later, but we need government funding to help those kinds of things forward. And that's really where a transhumanist president could be very, very useful. There's been a lot of uh, certainly conflict between your movement and and some of the religious you know movements, and it's it's interesting to me as somebody who is uh, probably uh, I connect with spirituality, although not necessarily organized religion, and at the same time I ve- I'm a big believer in science, so uh, you know I sort of see it, and you know and uh, and where, so where does the line get drawn? You know, in my mind, it's sort of like hey. You know, almost everybody, except for a few religions, are in favor of, you know, let's say, uh, life-saving medical techniques, uh, you know, of various types, right? Uh, You know, they don't turn down heart surgery or, uh, you know, drugs that will uh, help people live longer uh, that have certain conditions and things like that. But yet, at some point, there's some of the religious movement feel like some of the stuff that you guys talk about, you know, is sort of playing God. And so, you know, talk to us about that whole conversation. Well, yeah, I'd say that religion conflict amongst the transhumanist movement, most people who are somewhat secular, is is huge. But let me just give you an anecdote, and especially because it relates to deal-making. That's very interesting. About six months ago, I wrote an article for the New York Times in the opinion section about artificial wombs. Now, probably within 12 to 18 months, we're going to have artificial wombs for preemie babies that are born 22 to 24 weeks. Normally, they don't survive, but they have already been testing these different types of preemie plastic bags that you would be able to have these tiny little babies when they get born prematurely so that they could survive. Now, the number one killer of children under five is premature birth. So there's a huge push for this. And of course, the problem, though, is that artificial wombs doesn't just go to 22 to 24 weeks of birth. 
it at some point might go to like 16 weeks and 12 weeks. And then you get to this kind of matrix phase where you're like, well, how soon can you grow a baby in a, in a, in a, you know, this artificial womb just as it is. And of course, probably in 20 or 30 years, we are going to get there. Now the, the deal making and the dilemma is how does the Catholic church react to this? Cause the Catholic church is very much against abortion, but this actually gives a third choice to the abortion issue because it's not, do you keep the child or do you uh, abort the child? It's now you have a third choice to take out the child, put in an artificial womb and then have somebody adopted. But having the Catholic church, which is of course one of the largest organizations in the world, a billion people, they say we should support life saving technologies like the artificial womb, but they haven't come out fully yet in saying this is a good alternative despite the fact that these things will probably be in use within 12 months. But this is the kind of thing where I hope some, maybe some Catholic uh, uh, lawyers are listening and they will say, listen, this is something that's very important. A transhumanist technology might actually give a third option when it comes to the abortion issue just through this. And maybe this is a way for the Catholic Church to both embrace transhumanism and embrace, you know, its pro-life kind of point of view. But this just shows like, you know, and I'm not giving an opinion here. I'm just trying to say how some technologies create the deal-making environment just by the fact that they come into existence. Yeah, and it's, that's a fascinating example for me because it's a great example of what I was mentioning. You know, it's like things seem to be black and white and it's, you know, uh, and it's strong opinions on the other side. And one of the things that technology definitely can do, and there are other examples in the, in the past, is sort of, you know, change our view of, you know, of that, right? I mean, you know, the, right, the abortion issue, you know, when a fetus is viable, not viable, all of those kind of, you know, discussions affect legal issues affect, you know, people, uh, you know, their religious views affect. Uh, so it's, it's a fascinating example. So it's really fascinating. Yeah. So talk to us a little more about some of the other things that transhumanism is, uh, is in favor of. And, and, uh, and again, I'm, I'm sort of really curious as to what you think can be done on the political level. Because again, I mean, there are, I mean, I'm right. There's, there's so many biotech and, you know, tech companies and Silicon Valley, you know, I mean, there's so many companies that Google and everybody are working on various aspects of things that will enhance, elongate or improve uh, human life. What is it that has it uh, be different when you move it into the political realm? And what are some of the other things that you're working on or in favor of that some of these maybe other companies are working on as well? Well, you know, I think the most complex one, and just so your listeners know, is probably what Elon Musk is working on with his uh, company Neuralink and, and others like Brian Johnson at Kernel. They're working on brain implants, which would allow you in real time to connect your thoughts into the cloud. So, for example, you have Google Maps on your phone and you want to, you're walking somewhere, but you don't know where you're going. You would, instead of going to your phone and looking at it, you would think it, you would think this thought, where you want to go, uh, it would connect to the cloud and then shoot back into your brain through these these, uh, this, you know, this chip implant, which has the ability to fire onto your neurons and create the space and ideas that would tell you to go left or right, and you're going to end up at this spot. Now, you know, the, the idea of this is sort of called telepathy, and we use these uh, brainwave technologies, but this is no longer science fiction. We already have people doing stuff like this in the experimental stage, and we have people being able to talk languages to one another without actually saying a word. So this stuff is coming. It's just the question of how fast, and of course, it's all transhumanist technology, but there's a very good chance within um, seven or 10 years, this will be something you'll go to Target or Walmart and be able to um, buy a headset that allows you to do this. And some people might even have the implant surgically put in that would allow you to connect your thoughts to the cloud. 
And so do you think, because it seems to me like this could become, just that one example could become another political football, right? Uh, you know, should that be allowed or not allowed? Can people choose? Does anybody be forced to do it? You know, with, will the government be surveilling, uh, you know, what comes off those uh, implants? You know, so there's a million things that come up on the political side of, out of an invention like this, right? Well, yes, 100%. And, you know, this is where my libertarian kind of stands strong is that I don't want to force anything on anyone. I just want it to be capitalism. And if you have the money to buy it, you buy it. And uh, hopefully, you know, everyone has an opportunity to buy it, sort of like cell phones, whether, you know, great cell phones or poor cell phones or whatever, but you have the access to it. And if you choose to use it, it'll somehow improve your productivity. Got it. Well, so, and that raises all kinds of issues. I mean, from everything from, uh, you know, performance, I mean, you want to talk about performance enhancing drugs and sports. How about, you know, chip versus not chipped athletes, uh, all, all the way to things like income inequality and, you know, and, and the technology gap. So it's, it's fascinating, uh, how uh, these uh, technological advances always raise all kinds of uh, societal, political, economical, social, religious, you know, issues uh, whenever they come up. Well, yeah, and this is, you know, one of the reasons why I think transhumanism politics goes together, because when you look at what really has changed society, when you look at what's also changing politics, it's science and technology again and again, historically, that have really made the biggest difference. And so that's why I think, you know, even if you don't like transhumanism, it's still important to consider it in the political, we- political realm, because without it, I feel like, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, we, we ought to have presidents who are very good at understanding the ins and outs of technology and utilizing and using it as well in order to understand what the people are going through. Love it. Okay, so Zoltan, before I ask you my final question, uh, if people want to find out more about you, uh, transhumanism, or you know anything you want to share, uh, what's the best place for them to go? My uh, libertarian you know, vice presidency website is Zoltan2020.com. My personal website, which might be more interesting, has all my interviews of five years and articles I've been writing with journalists for many years. And that's ZoltanEshvan.com. And, you know, the book I spoke about, The Transhumous Wager, is online at Amazon as well as other books I've written. So just Google my name and discover, Google my name and type in a topic you like. And you, I've written almost 250 opinion articles. So you'll find something that's, uh, that's interesting to you. I love it. So, folks, it's a, that'll you know be in the show notes as well, and it's uh, it's O L T O N I S T V A N. If you're looking them up, Zoltan. So, my final question on the podcast is uh, is always uh, you know is the same, and and in your case, I'm particularly interested in how you're going to answer that answer this uh, from your perspective. Freedom is my highest single value in life, and for me, it means freedom from oppression for all peoples of all types to, to the reason I'm an entrepreneur, right? And run businesses because I, you know, I'm not made to work for someone else, right? So, you know, for me, it means a lot. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact, uh, you know, the work you do? Well, you know, the special thing about freedom to me is freedom of health. And I know a lot of people, when they think of freedom, they think of personal liberties, they think of the U.S. Constitution, they think of maybe gun rights, whatever it is. But I actually think of health because I've, you know, my father died a few years ago, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, I've seen uh, covering war zones. I've seen what happens. You know, people fight for the freedom. But the problem is if you don't believe that, you know, there's an afterlife like I don't, then for me, freedom is trying to remain alive, to enjoy life and to prosper and to hopefully continue on indefinitely. And that's really why transhumanism's number one goal is to try to live indefinitely through science and technology. We want the freedom to be able to avoid death. And that's really why, for me, I just want the freedom to have perfect health so that I don't have to someday go through this, this great tragedy of dying. And I know it's a little bit weird of an idea to think about, 
but I can assure you there are now, you know, tens of billions of dollars filtering into the life extension movement of people who no longer believe that death is a natural thing. We want freedom from morbidity. We want freedom from the idea that we are mortal human beings. We want to be able to live indefinitely. So for me, freedom is the ability to avoid and escape death. Zeldin, thank you for being on the DealQuest podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. You can be a friend of the show by leaving a review on the Good Pods app, podchaser.com, or any major podcast player. Every review helps the show reach more listeners. If you're ready to take your deal-making to the next level by becoming a master negotiator, head over to Amazon or Audible and grab a copy of my best-selling book, Authentic Negotiating. Then connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.